Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Good morning, everybody. Everybody good? Good to see you all this morning. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. My wife is out of town, so I'm letting my beard grow. Uh, Not forever, just till Tuesday. She'll be back on Tuesday. She hates whiskers. Uh, She won't complain. She's such a sweet girl. She won't complain. She just also won't kiss me on the mouth. Uh, She kisses me on the forehead, and that's my sign. Um, But anyway, it's not my favorite, so I will typically shave for her. I had a pizza with green peppers, which she also doesn't like. Uh, So all that was good. But I slept terrible, you all. Uh, Casey, I know some of y'all, like when you sleep, you like to, you know, you don't want to be hot, so you don't want anybody to touch you. But Casey and I sleep in one pile in the middle of the bed. And uh, I spent all night long looking for her, so I can't wait to have her back. Um, Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And... uh, Continuing in the series entitled, I Have My Doubts. You ever played Jenga? Yeah, Jenga. Uh, It comes from a Swahili word, which means to build. But in my experience, Jenga is not so much about building. It's more about unbuilding uh, because it's a game that uh, involves taking the pieces out. You start with this perfect a tightly stacked tower of identical blocks, and then one at a time, players, you take out a block, and then whoever pulls out the block that brings the tower down, you lose. And that's how Jenga works. When it comes to my own personal life of faith, uh, the faith as I received it um, was like one perfect Jenga tower. And when I was young, I didn't realize that there were individual parts. For me, it was all one big whole. The faith, uh, my salvation in Jesus, all of that was in one piece with my family life, with my parents who are godly, Jesus-loving people, um, with my larger family, with my church. I grew up going to a church that was right next door to my grandma's house. So going to church was all connected with going to grandma's. So much so that like when we go to church, we go to grandma's first and get cookies out of the cookie jar and then go to church and then get out of church and then go back to grandma's and get more cookies out of the cookie jar, you know? Um, me and my cousins, church, faith, family, uh, all of it was, was all one piece for me and it was wonderful. My church, I loved, uh, as a kid, I always loved pastors and preachers. I don't know if that was the first sign that God was calling me, but I always admired them, loved them looked up to them, Uh, church was the second home. And so my faith in Jesus came in in that package and and I thought of it as all one big package, like a Jenga tower. As a kid, I didn't imagine that there were individual parts that could be removed or fall out. I guess when I was about seven, seven years old is the first time Um, I began to realize that things were more fragile than I'd imagined. Seven, eight years old, our church pastor, whom I loved, turned out not to be the man we thought he was. And so there was a big church conflict, big fight. My mom was the church secretary at the time, so she was kind of 
in the middle of all of that. Um, it was the first time that I just experienced that feeling of, of disappointment when church people turn out not to be the people you thought they were, you know? Now, our church itself, I, I knew that, <laughs> I knew we were harsh. I knew that, but I always thought that was because we just love Jesus so much. And so, there was the time when a teenage girl in our church was publicly shamed because she had been seen smoking a cigarette at school. We were pretty legalistic, and, and I knew that. And again, I thought that was part of what it meant to love Jesus. I knew we were legalistic. I didn't realize that we were racist. I, I didn't see how racist we were until my church. We voted out a young girl because rumor was that she had been seen holding hands with a black boy at school. I remember feeling really sorry for her and also thinking that nobody else did. I feel sorry for her. Growing up in the same church, probably when I was, I don't know, 13, 14, um, I was betrayed by a church leader in a way that left me a burden of, of shame and uh, confusion for years. There reached a point where um, we couldn't even continue, uh, so my family left the church, the only church I'd ever known, the church that had been like a home. We, we left that church when I was 16. Uh, we came to Woodburn, and Woodburn's been a blessing. Uh, you all have been an amazing blessing in my life, but, but my faith struggle continued. In high school, uh, I had an atheist friend, and I really liked this girl. She was really smart, and we had a lot of classes together, and uh, she had questions about God and questions about faith that, honestly, I had never even thought about asking. And uh, it was a little frightening just to realize how easily some people could, could pick apart the pieces of faith and have nothing left. That was scary. It was scary to me. It really was. Because I knew that the you know, strong tower of my faith as I received it as a child was beginning to you know, lose Loose pieces. I said my church was legalistic, and man, we sure were. But that became confusing because our church preached against things like dancing and drinking and smoking cigarettes. I mean, we, we, we talked a lot about things like that. And uh, later I learned a question, you know, I mean, that's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that you can't dance. The Bible doesn't say, you know, so much of what my preachers had said, and it was hard to figure out, you know, what they had told me that I needed to keep and what they had told me that I needed to, to put away. In, in college, I had lots of questions about science and creation and evolution, and 
there just, it came a point where I felt so many of the pieces coming apart that I just began to worry, you know, like, how, how many pieces can be taken out without the whole thing coming down, without the whole tower of my faith collapsing? And, and that became the real fear, you know? It's like if, if, if the whole thing comes down, what will be left? Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and let's read the words of Paul and talk about these matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 is where I want to start. I'm going to start right there where it says, well, you are God's building. Do you see where I am? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, you are God's building, all right? You are God's building. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, say it, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, Wood, hay, or straw, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool <laughs> to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they are worthless. So don't boast about following a particular human leader for everything belongs to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life Death, the present and the future, everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Okay, so Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. They are messed up. I mean, the church is messed up. Uh, I don't know that if they're messed up in ways that other churches aren't or couldn't be, but the church at Corinth is, is one messed up place. The problems in the church are expressed with this incredible lack of unity. This church is shattered in as many ways as it can be shattered. It's like these people set the alarm and get up early just to think of new ways to be divided from each other. They're divided over spiritual gifts. They're divided over all kinds of issues, marriage, whatever. And among other things, they're divided over leadership. As in people would say, you know what? I, I follow Paul. Paul's my pastor. And other people say, well, you're crazy. Apollos is obviously the more intellectual of the two. Apollos is, is my kind of teacher. I follow Apollos and other people are like, hey, I'm old school. I'm going with Peter. Peter's my pastor. And so Paul is trying to help the church understand 
who they are and what they are and how the leaders actually function. So he starts out early in chapter three. He says, don't you understand? You're like a big field. You're God's field. It's like a farming picture where someone comes by and works the soil and somebody else comes by and plants the seed and somebody else comes by and waters the seed and then finally someone else reaps the harvest. Paul's trying to say all of us as leaders, we're doing the same job. We're actually workers together. It's, it's, it's all God's work. We're just workers together. And then Paul goes on to say, you're God's field. You're also God's building. That's where we started today. You're, you're the building, you're building now, this is interesting. Paul says, I laid a foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Nobody else can uh, have another foundation. That's the foundation. But, but still, other people are going to build. So you think about the house of faith that is the church, the house of faith that in many ways is your life. Lots of different people make a contribution. Lots of different people can be involved in the building of this house of faith faith that is your life. And the thing is, they don't all make the same contribution. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. Do you see that? Paul's saying there are all kinds of people who may lay something down here in, in, in the fabric of your faith, in, in the construction of your faith, but they don't all make the same kind of worthy contribution. I think the point that Paul is making here is important for you and me to understand. Some people will help your faith. Some people will hurt your faith. This is what Paul is saying when he describes that you know, some people are going to build with, with worthy materials, gold, silver, precious stones, Understand, these are materials that are pure. These are materials that are not polluted. These are materials that can't be destroyed. They're lasting. And Paul says there are people who are going to build on the faith foundation of your life, and they are going to make a contribution that is true and worthy and lasting. But make no mistake, there are going to be other people too, and they're going to lay down other stuff in the construction of your faith, and it's not going to be as good. Wood, hay. Straw, Paul says. Some people in your life are going to help your faith. Some people in your life are going to hurt your faith. And you need to understand the way that works. You need to understand it for this simple reason, that when it comes to your personal faith, at some point, you've got to learn the difference between the silver and the straw. You know what I mean? Paul says, some people are going to build with gold, silver, precious stones. Other people are going to be wood, hay, and straw. I'm saying, you've got to learn to know the difference. Paul says that the difference is going to be obvious come judgment day, because at the end of everything, it's just going to be revealed. Paul says the fire will reveal it. He's using that analogy of fire because obviously wood, hay, and straw are going to be destroyed just like that. It can't last. But gold, silver, precious stones, they can't be destroyed. They can't burn. They only become pure, brighter. They last. Paul says, when the trumpets blow, you'll know. And when the trumpets blow, everybody who's had anything to do with any bit of this, they're going to have to give an account before God. They're going to have to answer 
for how they built upon this foundation. They're going to have to answer for whether they hurt or helped you. They're going to answer. But can I just tell you something? Lots of times, you don't have to wait till the trumpets blow. It becomes obvious a whole lot earlier that there are people who somewhere in the formation of your faith, they did not help you. Now, I want you to understand this for the simple reason that as I've been saying, when I received the faith, I just sort of thought of it as this one piece, all of it connected. My love for Jesus, my love for my parents, my church, my family, my grandma's house, the church people that I love, the experiences of being in church, growing up in this wonderful family of God. I mean, I just sort of always imagined that uh, all of that was in one piece. And so when the pieces start coming out, understand there's this temptation just to let it all go. I mean, it looks like it's all going to come down. I can just walk away. And that's what a lot of people do. They don't understand. They don't understand this principle that there's silver and there's straw and that you're going to have to do a hard job of looking back through your life, looking at the foundation of your own faith, looking at the construction of your own faith and learning to know the difference between what is real and what is not real, what is true, what is not true, what is helpful, what is harmful. You've got to learn the difference between the silver and the straw. Lots of people don't. Lots of people can't. And for that reason, they just walk away. They leave it all. Just walk away. And what you have to understand is it's happening now in droves. There is a massive exodus out of our churches, a, a massive exodus away from the things of faith. It's happened in my lifetime, and it is staggering, and it is accelerating a couple of things. First, understand the latest Gallup poll. Gallup has been doing surveys and uh, publishing statistics in the United States for about 70 years, seven decades, all right? In the most recent Gallup poll, the number of North Americans who claim membership in any type of church fell below 50%. Fell below 50% for the first time in history. First time in history, fewer people go to church than don't. First time in history in North America. These are people who claim any kind of affiliation. I mean, in these surveys, you always knew there's a whole lot of people who say they go and don't. Or a whole lot of people that say they're members of a church and we didn't even know. I always think it's a little odd when I read the obituaries and somebody was a member of Woodburn Baptist Church. I'm thinking, well, that's news to me and I don't, I never missed a Sunday. <laughs> I mean, you know. So there are all kinds of people who claim membership so that number's probably always been inflated. So if the number is inflated now, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. It, it, it goes on. One in five people who went to church in the year 2000 was no longer in church in the most recent uh, survey year, which is 2020. One in five people. Now, if you're wondering if that's actually true, just think. Think. Think of Five church-going friends in your life, and I guarantee if you can name five, one of them probably quit going to church in the last three years. Am I right? One in five people who went to church in 2000, 
no longer in church in 2020. This is basically my ministry here. I, I, I came, uh, I've been a pastor for about 26 years. So in, in this period of time, there is this trajectory, this incredible, dramatic, staggering exodus of people out of the church and away from faith. And it's showing no signs, no signs of slowing down. Uh, understand this, I know this isn't gonna talk to everybody, but it's gonna talk to some of you. Recently, the hashtag ex-Christian, right? Y'all know what a hashtag is? Uh, if you wanna search something on social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, TikTok, Instagram, any of these, you, you search with the hashtag and everybody who's tagged their post with that hashtag, you, you'll get all those in one bunch and so you can join that conversation and you can read what they're saying, all right? So recently, the hashtag ex-Christian had 696.7 million cumulative views on TikTok and was assigned to 68,600 posts on Instagram. Okay, I know that some of you don't even understand what TikTok is and you think, well, isn't that just like people watching cat videos and pornography? Um, apparently there's you know, nearly 700 million people on TikTok that are engaged in a conversation around what it means to leave the faith. It's not even that this is just a thing, y'all. This is a big thing. There's another hashtag, which is exvangelical. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with that, the term evangelical, most of us would say that we're evangelical believers and our church is an evangelical church. And so exvangelical is another hashtag, which is just people who've who were Christians in the way that we're Christians and they left churches like ours. Recently, the hashtag exvangelical had 1.1 billion views on TikTok. Billion. I, I find this the most shattering news in the world. They're just walking away. Now, what do they say? Why are they leaving? Um, the interesting thing is there are themes. Uh, you can interview, and, and that's been done, and there are a number of reports and surveys and statistics about who's leaving and why they're leaving, and, and there are themes. You should know that, and it's probably no surprise to you. Now, I, I know that from the beginning of this series, I've been talking a lot about intellectual struggles. My struggle was in many ways intellectual, just questions about the Bible or about different things, but most people, their doubt is not an intellectual kind of struggle. What causes them to doubt is, is just simply bad church experiences. This is the number one reason people walk away from faith. And as, do you understand, this has nothing to do with Jesus. Everything to do with us. Bad church experiences is the number one reason why people are walking away from faith. Let that sink in. I tell you, I think there's a world of people who think they're walking away from Jesus, but then they never even met Jesus. On their way to coming to meet Jesus, they met me and you, and then they got turned off and, and turned around. They never even got to meet Jesus. So they think they're walking away from Christian faith, but they never even tasted Christian faith, but they got a really good taste of church people. Sent them running in the opposite direction. Y'all have heard stories. You've talked to people 
There are so many people who will talk about the lowest point of their life, the lowest point of their life. Maybe it was the death of a loved one or a divorce or they lost their job or lost their children. And the very lowest point of their life, they came to church. Often they come to church for the first time. I I try to explain to you over and over and over that when people walk in those doors for the first time, it's never for nothing. People who are non-believers, people who don't go to church, they don't just wake up early one Sunday and decide to, to go to church. That's not how it works. There's almost always some deep need. There's something going on that causes them searching, and they come here to search because they've heard, they've got some impression that the church is a place where there's hope and there's help. So very often they come to us in the lowest points of their lives, And then they walk away with a story which is simply, you know, at the worst time in my life, I didn't think it could get any worse, but the church managed to make it all worse. Stories of abandonment, stories of shame, stories of just heaping guilt. Can we just admit we're not very good at loving and welcoming people? And we think church is some sort of country club for awesome people, and we never really understand the drastic need for sinners to know the Savior. I mean, they just come in, they meet us, they they run the other direction. And it's not just people being disappointed with the way church turns out. I I mean, there are people that are literally traumatized, traumatized by experiences in church. I need to remind you, we're a Southern Baptist congregation, and if you pay any attention to the news at all, Southern Baptists have been in the news a lot the last two years. For what? For our amazing mission program? Not at all. For the fact that while other denominations seem to struggle in attendance, we seem to hold steady? Not at all. Why are we in the news? Because it's been revealed that we have this long history of sexual abuse in our congregations. Sexual abuse primarily children, often women, often preyed upon by pastors and church leaders. And what have we done? We've told the victims to be quiet because it would be an embarrassment to the church or might even harm the gospel. They have to be quiet. Meanwhile, we protect the perverts. A pastor can abuse a kid in one church and just move on to another congregation and start over. It's happened. Over and over and over. That's our history. Do you do not understand the number of people out there who are absolutely traumatized and in other ways disgusted at the way we as church people have conducted ourselves? Is there any surprise at all that they're walking away in droves? They're done. They're fed up. They're not giving us another chance. Reason number two it's really related. Uh, I get this from the book of Micah, chapter six, where it says, you know, there's only one thing God requires of you, and that is to, to do rightly, to love justice, and walk humbly with the Lord your God. Man, the world can see that we don't do that. Man, to do rightly, to love justice, walk humbly with God. Man, I wish we did. It's not what we're known for. The world outside knows all the things we're against. Because, man, we've been preaching about the stuff we hate with, with, with very loud volume and lots of passion for a long time. They are well aware of all the things that we're against. Right now, most people who don't go to church think of one thing of the church. They just think we hate gay people. 
That's their impression of the church. They just hate gay people. That's our only reputation. We were sent out into the world with one message, the gospel of Jesus, but we haven't managed to convey the one message, but boy, we've sure let them know that we don't like gay people. I mean, they know all the things we're against. They don't know anything we're for. Do you understand? There was a time, civil rights movement in the 60s, there was a time when people came to church and they worshiped, then they walked out and marched and changed the world. Now, when's the last time anything happened in a, in a church like ours and we walked out into the streets and changed the world because of it? You know, that's how the civil rights movement happened. It started in the church. That was a church movement. Can you even imagine a scenario where the church in the United States makes that kind of positive difference in the culture? I'm telling you, they recognize our hypocrisy. They can see plainly where our priorities are. We, we, we failed. And then the third one, this is one I have talked about. It's just the dismissal or even punishment of questions and doubts. Man, if, if you're the person whose faith is starting to come apart and the, the pieces are, are being taken out one after another, it's hard to know how to hold it together, and you really want to think that there's going to be somebody somewhere who's going to be able to uh, help you know how to put the pieces together. But that's not what we're known for. Last summer, I was a pastor at Camp Crossings. It's the big camp where all of our teenagers go. Our, our kids go there. I mean, thousands of kids go there every summer. Last summer, during the week when I was there, there was a small church with a tiny youth group that had 14 kids, and that was the whole youth group, and they were all at camp, 14 kids. And out of 14 kids, three, three were gender non-binary. Church kids, in a tiny church, in a small youth group, three out of 14. Now, I know some of you think, I don't know what that means. You're thinking, what, what, is, what is gender? Your kids know exactly what that is. They have a lot of questions about that. The world has answers. We don't even want to talk about it. I guarantee you, we got kids in our church that wonder if it would be okay if they invited their gay friends to church. They're not sure. They grew up here with us, and, and having grown up with us, they're not sure that they could bring their gender nonconforming friend to church. Our kids have questions, y'all, and we're not, uh, we're not making room for those questions, and we're going to lose our kids. Because I'm telling you, the world's got answers for them. We have kids confused at the very core of who they are. They don't know if they're male or female. And that's not even a conversation that the church knows how to have. I find that devastating. That people would feel ashamed or afraid to even ask the questions that they're actually wondering because it just seems like everybody else has got their faith all tight and stacked, you know? What if you're the person whose faith is just kind of coming apart, you know, one, one, one piece at a time? I mean, how many pieces can come out and, and you have something left? People have questions, people have doubts, and the church is just not the place for it. 
So the question, how many pieces can come out? I mean, how many pieces come out before the whole thing comes down? And then as I said, my big question was, when, if it all comes down, what do I have left? Okay, let's come back to it. Uh, what does Paul say? Jesus is the foundation of your faith, nothing else. Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of your faith, nothing else. My faith was never supposed to be built upon my parents. I love my parents. They're godly, stable people, and I'm blessed to have had godly parents. But my faith can't be their faith. It's got to be my own. My faith has to be built on another foundation. It can't be any human person. Imagine where I'd be if I'd built my faith on the pastors I had through my life because pastors have let me down. Pastors have stood in the pulpit and preached stupidity and, and called it the word of God. I mean stupidity. Y'all, I remember, and y'all, I mean, y'all, I mean, I know that I'm old and y'all just have to deal with having an old man preach to you. Uh, I grew up in the 70s and the worst sin imaginable in my church as a boy growing up in the 70s was to have long hair. Long hair. We had a youth revival once where if a young man came and got saved, they would give him a haircut right off the side of the stage because obviously if you've come to Jesus, you're gonna need a haircut. I'm not making that up. It's long hair. That, that's insane. To make that the issue? You can't be a Christian and have long hair? I mean, that's insane. And I'm just saying, uh, the kids I grew up with, almost none of them are in church now. Because how are you supposed to put faith together if your faith is so, so convoluted with all of these things that the Bible never said? Our preacher said it. Our preacher could tell you who the Antichrist is. He could tell you every four years, it was always whichever presidential candidate he was against. I'm not making that up. I mean, I remember in church, put a picture of Jimmy Carter on the screen because he didn't like Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is the Antichrist. You really think it's an accident that his initials are JC? That's what we all said. Why? <laughs> That's bound to prove it. JC, you know? I don't know how many people have left the church in the last four years because of Trump. Because of Trump, 